0: touch with technology with TechStuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I am Jonathan Strickland, and today I want to talk about the DARPA Robotics Challenge. You may remember I did an episode where I interviewed someone from DARPA to talk about the robots for us part of the DARPA Robotics Challenge. And since then, the challenge actually occurred. It happened. I'm recording this on June 11th, 2015. And uh, the previous weekend is when they held the DARPA Robotics Challenge Finals. Uh, this was the last step in a journey to create a robot that could respond to a simulated emergency situation. And it was a pretty interesting event. So... To start off, we gotta talk about DARPA itself. Remember, that's the research and development arm of the Department of Defense. It's technically the U.S. Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. Uh, and DARPA's been responsible for a lot of cutting edge research, largely in the mode of military use, but we have seen the benefits of that research hit us in other ways besides, you know, the military applications. So, for example, ARPANET, the predecessor to the Internet, was the platform upon which the technologies that allow the Internet to work were developed. And that was a DARPA project. That was back when they were first just called ARPA rather than DARPA. But uh, we wouldn't have the Internet at least not the way we have it today, if it were not for this agency. So the agency has done a lot of stuff that has benefited us in many ways. I'll talk about another one a little bit later on in the podcast to kind of draw parallels to what happened with the robotics challenge. So here we have this agency. They're all about research and development. They don't actually have lots of labs with scientists working in them. No, what this agency does is it sends out proposals to other groups and asks them to help work on various projects. Sometimes they hold challenges. In these challenges, it's kind of an open invitation for any group that can participate to uh, to compete in some way, and the winner usually gets some sort of cash prize. And so often the cash prize will be less than the investment needed to actually participate in the competition to build out the thing that you need to make for us to to win. But it's still a very important uh, and prestigious event to be part of if you are capable of competing. Now, we're talking mostly about research departments, engineering departments in universities. But there are also some private institutions, not just university Type things, but actual research and development labs that will participate in DARPA projects as well. And it's collectively that these teams, uh, were kind of, they're the ones that are pushing the technology forward and DARPA is kind of the facilitator. They're offering up the possibility for people to actually, uh, participate and not only the possibility, but the goals. They define the goals that have to be met. And as it turns out, Defining those goals is a very important part of these challenges because you have to tell the engineers what it is they need to be able to do before they can build the stuff that does it. If, if you have a very vague uh, description of what needs to be done, the possibilities of achieving it are so varied that it can often paralyze a project. Nothing gets done. But if you make it very specific, then it narrows down the options and it gives more focus to the project. So the DARPA Robotics Project itself was inspired by a real-world disaster, specifically the Fukushima disaster in Japan. Now, this was the nuclear uh, facility, the nuclear reactor that was flooded and then suffered some massive uh, problems because of damage to the infrastructure. And we're talking about a nuclear facility. Uh, radiation is a factor. So it's a very dangerous environment to send responders to. DARPA's approach was to create a scenario In which a robot would need to go through an environment similar to that that was at Fukushima and be able to perform the tasks necessary to help avert true devastation and catastrophe without putting people at risk. So the idea is that you can use a robot, which is not going to respond to radiation the way a a living organism would. And be able to actually carry out the the stuff you need to prevent a really huge problem from getting worse. So uh, some people have referred to the DARPA Robotics Challenge as the Robo Olympics because it was a series of tasks that a robot has to complete, and it had to all be the same robot teams could not build individual robots designed to complete specific tasks. If they could, it would be way easier of a challenge because most of the robots that are in use today have very narrow parameters. There's just maybe a single task or perhaps just a couple of small, you know, a small range of tasks that the robot has to do. It doesn't have to do anything outside of that. So when you're designing the robot, You just say, all right, well, what design elements will allow the robot to do what it has to do? Anything that's outside of that is unnecessary. We will not do it. Take the Roomba as an example. It's a great example. It's a a robot that vacuums. It cleans floors. Anything that's not necessary for the Roomba to do that is put aside. You'd want to make sure that all the design elements in your robot complement its purpose. But if you have to complete A lot of different tasks, and those tasks are not always similar to one another, you complicate the the whole design process by incredible factors. It's hard to even express how much more difficult this is. Now, if you've watched any of the videos that came out of the DARPA Robotics Challenge, you probably saw at least one or two that were montages of robots falling over. And it's a little funny to watch. You see these big robots just topple over sometimes apparently for no reason. They just, they just, they're standing and then they collapse. And there's something comic about that, you know, that you can't deny that it's funny, but it also demonstrates that these robots are trying to do something that while we as human beings might find easy, it's a real challenge from a robotics standpoint. So, this DARPA Robotics Challenge had three phases. Uh, the first one was a virtual challenge which, uh, in which teams were to design software that would allow a virtual robot to complete um, certain tasks within a virtual environment. So there were no real robotics here, but it was a, a, a test to see if, if the teams could actually build the software necessary to make the robot do the tasks that needed to be done. The next had a trial where it was a physical trial where, where teams actually had to uh, place a real robot through to, you know, go to the next level. And then you had the finals, which were the ones that ha- happened most recently. Uh, and I'll go through each of the tasks that they had to do in just a second. If we look back at the virtual challenge, there were 26 teams that were part of it. To build that software, uh, the robot they were controlling was a virtual Atlas robot, which is uh, a humanoid robot and was a popular choice for a lot of the teams when they moved on to the more physical uh, trials. They still would use the Atlas robots. The, the challenge, by the way, did not require the teams to build their own robots from scratch. They could use pre-existing robots, but they had to program them so that they could complete the necessary tasks. So not every robot out there would have been a good fit for this. Let's go back to the Roomba. The Roomba would have been a terrible choice to enter into the DARPA Robotics Challenge. would have been funny, but it wouldn't have worked. So uh, here are some of the virtual tasks that the virtual robots had to complete using this software. They had to walk through an area of uneven ground that had debris uh, included there. So simulated debris had to have a, a software that would allow the robot to maintain its balance, even while uh, tracking a path to a specific destination through this this uneven terrain. They had to attach a hose to a spigot and turn a valve. Uh they also were given some artificial limits because in an emergency situation, you cannot always count on your communication lines being perfectly sound, such as at the Fukushima disaster. You need to be sure that your robot can contend with the fact that there might be lag between when you can issue a command and when the robot is ready for the next command. Uh, It it meant that some of the teams started to really look at ways to create a semi-autonomous robot. So some of the teams built robots that were capable of taking on some tasks autonomously. Uh, Some teams avoided that entirely. They focused on using the robots as a direct extension of the Controls that the humans were behind. So, in other words, you might think of those robots as enormous technological puppets. The puppets would respond to direct human commands uh, and wouldn't be able to do anything on their own. They didn't have any autonomy. Uh, There were other ones that, you know, you you could have semi-autonomy. Show it a set of stairs, and you send it the command to climb those stairs. And it could do the rest. It could calculate how high it needed to put its feet and how to shift its weight, that sort of stuff. Uh, and there were a lot of different strategies employed and to varying degrees of su- success. It wasn't like the autonomous robots automatically were better than the human-controlled or vice versa. There was actually – it all depended on the implementation. So that virtual uh trial ended up having one team uh, winning pretty pretty decisively. Um, it was the uh, Institute for Human and Machine Cognition, which is uh, a, an organization in Pensacola, Florida. And eight other teams qualified for the trials uh, that were going to be held in December 2013. Now, by the time those trials happened, some of the teams had merged uh, and some other teams were coming into it. Six of the teams would go on to compete at the trials that were held at the Homestead Miami Speedway. And they had eight tasks they had to complete that were similar to the ones in the the DARPA robotics final. And those tasks included uh, manning a vehicle, um, walking through uneven terrain, or otherwise moving through uneven terrain. Robots did not have to be bipedal. They could move around on however many limbs they had. They just had to be also able to do these other tasks. Uh, they had to be able to climb a ladder. They had to be able to remove debris from a door and then open the door. They had to be able to break through a wall. Uh, they had to be able to handle valves and to attach a hose to a spigot. Uh, the winning team of that set of trials was a group called Shaft, spelled S-C-H-A-F-T, uh, this was a group out of Japan. Now, when this group was competing, they were this little independent group, but then they got acquired by a little company that we've talked about several times on this podcast. You know, them. you may or may not love them, Google. So just before the trials, Google had acquired, uh, this, this, this group, this organization now Shaft did really well, uh, which, you know, makes sense. I mean, you've, you've heard the theme song. Uh, but out of 32 points that it could possibly score, it earned 27. Uh, so pretty good score for, for a robot. And also that was seven points more than the next closest competitor, which was from IHMC, the same group that won the virtual trial earlier. Uh, third place was Tartan Rescue from Carnegie Mellon. And uh that'll be important in a second, too, when we get into the finals. Now, Shaft did not go on to compete in the DARPA Robotics finals because Google announced that they were refocusing the team, dedicating it to actual commercial Google projects. So uh they were no longer being dedicated to this challenge. They were being dedicated to a real-world product of some sort. Uh Google's also had other involvement with some DARPA stuff, at least after the fact. Google does not tend to get involved in these challenges directly, uh, probably because of the military association of DARPA. And Google's very careful to avoid those kind of associations. Now, the finals took place over June 5th and June 6th in Pomona, California. And uh, it was at the Fairplex. And there was a, quite a crowd watching these events. And the reports I read were really interesting. And also the videos I watched were interesting because the crowd was extremely enthusiastic, cheering on the robots, groaning every time a robot failed a task or fell over, gasping when that sort of stuff happened because everyone wanted to see these robots succeed. No one wanted any group to fail. And uh also the other interesting thing was that It was really hard to tell if you were in the audience when a robot was operating autonomously as opposed to being controlled by humans. Um, That says two things. One, that the line between these two is getting further and further blurred. And two, that sometimes... The robot would behave in a weird way and you couldn't be sure if it was because the autonomous programming was lacking or because the control mechanisms were limited. So in other words, it's not that necessarily that the art has gotten so advanced that we can't tell the difference. It may be that the art has not advanced enough that we can't spot what is the cause of incompetence. (laughs) The and, and I use the word incompetence mainly as a joke. It's just a joke because truthfully, it displays how difficult robotics as a discipline actually is, how, how challenging it is to design a robot that is capable of doing the same sort of things that humans can do. It shows that the things that we take for granted as being pretty simple are fiendishly difficult when you get to a design and programming level, when you're actually building a robot that's going to be capable of doing the same thing. So here are the eight tasks that the robots had to complete. And one of these tasks was called surprise. I'll get to it. But the reason it's called surprise is that DARPA told all the teams, your robot will encounter a task similar to these other ones that you already know about, but we're not going to tell you what it is. And it meant that the teams knew that there was going to be something on that list of tasks that was not, not defined and that their robot would have to be able to contend with it in order to get a point for that particular task. And so the tasks were, um, there were eight, like I said, eight of them. You were awarded a point if your robot could successfully complete that task. So. The score, the final scores, uh, once everything was done, were determined by how many tasks were completed successfully and what was the time of the robot's performance. Now, when they were first designing the robots, teams were told they would have half an hour per task. So you have eight tasks, half an hour per task. That's four hours total. But at the actual competition, they were told they would have one hour to complete all eight tasks. Um, And... While you might think that how is that fair as a, a bait and switch, you also have to understand this was all about simulating an emergency response. So uh, under those emergency conditions, you can't expect to ask for more time. That's not realistic. Uh, and it added an extra layer of pressure on the teams. So those eight tasks, the first one was to drive. So the robots had to drive a Polaris Ranger XP900 vehicle. These, if you haven't seen them, they look like, uh, sometimes you might call them a gator, or you might think of it as a golf cart on steroids. These are, uh, uh, vehicles that are similar to golf carts. They're, they're largely open. They've got, uh, you know, heavier wheels than golf carts do, more, more horsepower than a golf cart would. But it's definitely in that range between golf cart and real car. Teams had five minutes to alter the vehicle without using tools to make sure that their robots could actually operate it. So what the robots had to do was drive from the starting point to a destination, and uh, it was only considered a success if the vehicle had completely moved past a finishing mark. The vehicle also had to go through essentially a driving course with obstacles and cones set up. And it was determined that if the robot were to collide with one of those obstacles or one of those cones and cause it to move as a result of that collision, the robot would not receive a point for that task. Uh, the robot also, the team could choose for the robot to, instead of driving, to walk to the destination. But in that case, they would not be awarded a point for that task. They would forfeit the point. Um but ideally, the robot would be able to operate the accelerator and the steering wheel and maybe even the brake and the shift. Uh, the The cars were already or the vehicles were already started. The engines were already uh, running and they were already in high gear because it was considered to be the smoothest way for the robots to to maneuver the vehicle. Uh, but if teams wanted to, they could design a robot that would be capable of shifting gears Uh, It was not a requirement. It was just something they could do if they wanted to. At any rate, the robot needed to be able to drive safely from the starting point to the destination and then halt the vehicle, either by letting off of the accelerator so it coasted to a stop or actually applying the brake. The next task, and that was just task number one. The next task was called egress, which is really just getting out of the car. And it sounds incredibly simple. And for humans, for most of us, it really is pretty simple. You know, it, we we intuitively know how to maintain our balance and to shift our weight so that we go from a seated position to standing. But that's not the case with robots. You have to design the robot to do that. You have to program the robot to do that. You have to have the robot be able to uh, anticipate what a shift in its weight will do, what how its momentum will carry it forward. As it turns out, this was one of the trickier tasks that teams had to complete to get out of a vehicle. It was not an easy thing to do. Um, But they were told that they could get out of the vehicle in either direction. They didn't have to exit out of the left side versus the right side. The robot could get out of either side. And again, the task was considered complete if the robot could get out of the vehicle and maintain its balance and move on to the next challenge. And if it could, it would receive a point. The next one was door. Now, egress was tough. Door was surprisingly tough. You would think that opening a door would be a pretty simple task. This was a push door operated by a lever style handle. You had to push up or pull, you know, pull up or push down rather. ...on the handle, and then push the door to open it. Then step through the door. The door did not have a threshold, so there was nothing that you had to step over. However, the door was a standard 36-inch wide doorway, and with the door jammed, that's closer to 33 and a half inches. And some of these robots were too wide to walk through the door, you know, heading with their torso facing forward. They actually had to turn sideways and then shuffle through the doorway... And there were a lot of robots that fell down at this stage of the 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 challenge. They would lose their balance either when pushing the door or when trying to maneuver through the doorway. Uh, one robot fell down at this stage and was able to pick itself back up very very slowly and deliberately, uh, which is remarkable because it's the only robot that managed to pick itself back up after falling over, and that was the Carnegie Mellon robot, the same one we mentioned in the trials part just a a few moments ago. But anyway, that was it. You just had to open the door and walk through the doorway, and that was the end of that task, and yet it was deceptively difficult. The next one was Valve, which was not about the uh, game company, but rather about turning a control as if you were turning a valve to operate a fire hose or to shut down water to a specific part of the system, which makes sense in a nuclear facility. You might have to shut off or open a valve in that case. The valve had to be turned counterclockwise uh, in 360 degrees in order for the task to be complete. And the team was only told that the valve would have a size between 4 and 16 inches in diameter which meant that you had to create a robot that would be capable of gripping anything within that range and then turning it in that counterclockwise direction 360 degrees. Uh, again, trickier than it sounds. The next step, the next task was called wall, in which a robot had to pick up a cordless drill. There were two of them available. Uh, they were not automatically on. The robot had to operate the cordless drill and turn it on uh, by squeezing the trigger. And use the cordless drill to cut through some drywall in a shape that was drawn on the drywall. Uh, the drywall was a half inch thick and the robot had to hold the drill, operate the drill and move in this shape and then remove the rubble. The idea being that sometimes the robot might have to cut through a surface in order to get access to certain controls, uh, that might otherwise be blocked by a collapse of a room or something along those lines. Uh, also pretty tricky, you know, using tools that were designed to be held in human hands. You know, humans, we, we have the ability to detect how much pressure we're using and to, um, to change that based upon what's happening. Robots, a little more tricky. I mean, you can have sensors that alert the, the operator what's happening to what's happening, but it's not intuitive. Again, you have to program it. Uh, after the wall was the surprise. Now, the surprise was something that DARPA could change out from day to day. There were two days of this series of challenges. And I know that on one day, I'm not sure if this was the same for the other day, but on one day, it involved picking up a plug and plugging it into a socket Uh I think they probably changed it for the second day, but I never could find out what the surprise was on that case. But at any rate, uh, it also ended up being pretty tricky. I saw one robot that attempted several times to plug the plug into a socket, and it was sad and funny at the same time. But yeah, again, it was one of those things where it was similar to tasks the robots had had to do previously, but wasn't something they were expressly told they would have to do during the actual challenge, so that's what made it really hard. The next task was rubble, in which the robot had to walk through a debris field or on top of the debris, either through it or on top of it. Uh, again, very challenging for robots to maintain their balance. There were lots of, um, you know Boston Dynamics robots that were pretty good at doing this, but still pretty tricky. You saw a lot of robots fall over at this point too. And then there were stairs. That was the final task, was to climb a set of stairs that had a rail on the left side, but no rail on the right side. And once the robot was completely on the top of the stairs, it was considered to have completed the task and the course, and its time would be logged. So again, those, those tasks, for the most part, pretty simple for your average human to do. But imagine that it's your job to build a robot that can do all of those things. Uh, it has to be able to have some form of perception. It has to be able to see either for the human operators to, uh, pick up various tools or navigate through certain areas or for it to, to see and operate autonomously. It has to be able to perceive its environment Understand depth. In fact, a lot of teams had trouble with the, the wall task because it was very hard to perceive how far away the drill was from a hand to pick it up and then use it. They, again, things that are pretty easy for most of us, very hard from a robotic standpoint. Um, and like I said, the door was one of the hardest ones. Uh, it, a lot of robots had a lot of issues just walking through a doorway, which is both funny and and really does bring to light that we've got a long way to go with robotics. Um, well, if if you as, as someone in the crowd had said, if the robotic uprising happens, just close the door and you'll be fine because uh, it's tricky stuff. It really shows that automation is, we take a lot of it for granted because the, the, the examples we see tend to be pretty elegant because they're designed for a specific purpose. But as we start looking at a more general purpose robot, we begin to understand exactly how complicated we human beings are. So to design a machine that can operate within our human world seamlessly is an incredible challenge. So who won? Well, the first place went to a South Korean team, K-A-I-S-T. It had its robot, the DRC Hubo, which completed all eight tasks in 44 minutes and 28 seconds. Those eight tasks, 44 minutes and 28 seconds. Remember, that's driving from one point to another, a very short distance, actually. Getting out of that vehicle... Walking through a doorway, cutting a hole through a wall, turning a valve, uh, plugging in a, a plug, um, walking over some debris and climbing some stairs—something that would take, you know, a, a healthy person—if it took them more than ten minutes, you would wonder what was going on. So, another example that the the winning team did it in forty-four minutes and twenty-eight seconds. Uh, there's also a great preparation video for the DRC Hubo that was put out by the South Korean team that I loved because it was like a training montage from Rocky. And, and they, it was clear the team had a, a sense of humor about this because it was showing the robot not just completing tasks that would be similar to the ones that were in the actual challenge, including things like climbing a ladder or, um, or lifting a tool, but also doing your typical You know, training montage stuff like doing pushups or taking a fighting stance like you're a, you know, a kung fu master. And that really tickled me. I thought it was pretty entertaining, but also very impressive about what they were capable of doing with that robot. The second place team was IHMC, that Pensacola, Florida group we talked about a minute ago. They were using the Boston Dynamics running man Atlas bot. Um, it took, Uh, It took about uh, 50 minutes and 26 seconds to complete all eight tasks. After it did so, after it climbed the stairs, it lifted its arms in victory and then fell over. So I guess that's hubris. The third place team was Carnegie Mellon, uh, their team Tartan Rescue, the one that had uh, come in third place in the trials as well. Their robot was called Chimp, which had very long arms. It was a red robot with arms that looked kind of freakishly long if you compare it to a human. And it also had treads uh, like a like a treadmill type thing on both of its legs and on both of its arms, and that was the robot that fell over in the door challenge and was able to right itself by itself. The only one that could get up by itself and didn't need a team of humans to actually lift it up. Now those were the only three teams that actually completed all of the eight tasks, and they won the prizes. First place was two million dollars, second place was one million, and third place was five hundred thousand. The other teams broke down like this. Four of them were able to complete seven of the tasks. Only one was uh, capable of completing just six tasks. You had two teams that completed five, two teams that completed four, four teams that completed three, two that completed two, one that completed one, and four teams weren't able to complete any of the tasks successfully. Um, Now, the whole point of this was to really push that state-of-the-art forward, to have engineers think, what would you need to do to build a robot capable of actually responding to real-world situations? What are the challenges that are in the way of that? How can we advance the technology both in the hardware and in the software, to overcome these challenges. And the goal was not to build a super robot that's going to save the world. This is not, you know, the Avengers Age of Ultron. That's not what's going on here. It's all about incremental improvements in the art and discipline of robotics so that the next generation of robots can benefit from the research and development done in this first generation. And a good way of seeing how this plays out in the real world, because, you know, you might think, well, that was a clever demonstration. But what what can we expect here on our day to day lives? Take a look at how autonomous cars are coming along, because, of course, DARPA held the Grand Challenge back in the mid to late 2000s. And that was the challenge in which different groups tried to build self-driving cars that could complete a course, whether it was out in the desert or simulated urban environment. And we are now seeing people who worked on the various teams that, that competed in that DARPA Grand Challenge building what will be the first generation of driverless cars that will eventually make it to the consumer market. Uh, Google has people on its team that competed in the those grand challenges. So we're seeing that expertise that was developed as as engineers were given a problem and told, find a way to solve this. We're seeing that expertise they developed come into play in the real world now. And it, sure, it's going to be a few more years before we get autonomous cars as a, a reality that a an actual human being can go out and purchase as opposed to a representative of a company or you know just a, a you know someone who is is there to demonstrate the viability of the technology it's going to be a few more years before this becomes something that you or i could go to the dealership and and actually purchase but the reality is there on the horizon same here with the darpa robotics challenge it will likely take a decade or more to develop a humanoid robot or a robot capable of operating within a world designed by humanoids for humanoids and do so seamlessly. It will take a lot of time and a lot more development, but the foundation has been laid. So I'm particularly excited to see what the future holds for us based upon these results. And while those montages of robots falling over are really funny I'm actually optimistic about what robotics will be able to accomplish in the future. I'm just also realistic that it's going to take time. It's not we're not on the verge of a terminator like future. The state of the art in artificial intelligence has gotten gone very far in certain realms of computer science, but when it comes to robotics there's a, there are a lot of problems that are still very difficult. You know, that vision is a big one. Uh, And, again, just being able to maintain balance, again, one of those things that we take for granted, really a, a challenging problem. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode, this look at the DARPA Robotics Challenge Outcome. I recommend that you go check out some videos that were shot while this was going on because they are really interesting. They're entertaining and, uh, they, they, I think they're really exciting. You know, it's something that really should get you excited about robotics in general. If that's a field you're interested in, definitely check it out. Uh, if you have any suggestions for future topics of tech stuff, whether it's actually a subject like uh, a general type of technology, or maybe it's a company or a person that I should focus on, or maybe there's a guest you would like me to interview or to have on as a guest co-host, let me know. Send me a message. The email address is at techstuffathowstuffworks.com or drop me a line on Facebook, Twitter, or Tumblr. The handle at all three of those is h s w, and I'll talk to you again really soon.